0: This is Fortune's Wheel, a podcast history of the late Middle Ages. I'm your host, Jonathan, and this is episode 30, in which Harold enters Miklagard. I loved the material and thought, you know, with the role that this all played in not only the life of our protagonist, but also the entire course of the Middle Ages, I felt it necessary to spend time taking it all in. See, Harold has just left Kiev, and his generous benefactor, Yaroslav the Wise, Grand Prince of the Kievan Rus', and he's embarked on an incredibly long and dangerous journey south to the fabled city. Miklagard. So, let's take a look at his route in greater detail than we've done in the past, culminating in the courtyard of Byzantine power itself, Constantinople. And I think you will come out the other side of this episode with a greater appreciation for the context in which we find Harold's most formative years. I hope you enjoy the show. I go creeping from forest to forest with little honor. A 15-year-old Harald Sigurdsson is quoted as saying as he was escaping the frigid highlands of Norway and Sweden. Who knows, he wondered, my name may yet become renowned far and wide in the end. Now given the hindsight of this quote's author, Snorri Sturluson in Iceland some 200 years later, That would hardly be a stretch to imagine young Harold thinking, if not outright saying. We today share a similar hindsight, though thanks to Snorri's timeless writings, we have something, legend or not, to go on when understanding the near-mythical life of one Harold Hardrada. If anything, we have a glimpse into the already legend status, that the gargantuan story Harold had inhabited in the 13th century Scandinavian mind. Think about it. Two hundred years later, and Snorri Sturluson immortalizes the guy. It should not be overlooked that Snorri was working with stories passed down throughout Scandinavia and abroad of the man called Hardrada. Maybe not a household name across all of Europe, but the place he inhabited in people's myths and stories of old was secure. And across the breadth of the North Sea, there is no doubt that the name Harold Hardrada was just that a household name. Sometimes it's the ideas passed down through story that hold more truth than the facts of the story. Now, don't misinterpret what I'm trying to say here. I think it's safe to assume the danger inherent when narratives are twisted in order to deceive. But I don't think that this was Snorri Sturlus' intention when when he attributed this quote to Harold. If anything, this fabricated quote was meant to signal foreshadowing, Nothing more. Every hero, and make no mistake, Harold was the hero of King Harold's saga. Every hero becomes an arrow at some point in his or her own story. And every hero needs a target. And the status of legend is, according to Snorri Sturluson's young Harold, just that, the inevitable target. But as we pick up Harold's story, he's hardly a legend let alone worthy of the name Hardrada at this point, roughly translated as Hard Ruler, or even Ruthless, depending on the source. Note one has a tinge of fairness and reverence, while the other has a healthy dose of bitterness. And no longer creeping, but capably and proudly traveling, well, from after three or so years serving under Yaroslav the Wise, traveling from forest to forest, as he says, well... It seems Harold still had a sense of aimlessness in his life as an exile. But honor? Honor something he was slowly but surely building with every passing year. And the same goes for renown. Among the Rus, it's said that Harold not only rose in the ranks of the Rus military, but he also enjoyed the company of its greatest ruler to date. But Kievan Rus' territory became well, it became too small for Harold and he took to the forests in southern Pecheneg territory, most likely down the Dnieper River. As we know already, this was no easy task. In fact, it was downright dangerous. But Harold knew the lands after his time spent fighting there. And if he didn't personally know the way to Miklagard, his destination, it's almost a given that his companions on the journey, most likely a contingent of, of Rus soldiers Yaroslav commissioned him, as well as Rus traders experienced in the trade routes, well, it's a pretty good bet they knew the way. Though Snorri Sturluson sets up the foregone conclusion that Harald would one day return to Norway and become king, spoiler alert, sorry, there's really no telling if Harald had the same outlook. If so, why would he head south? So many Norwegians in the past who sought to claim, or reclaim, the throne had spent time in Kiev or Novgorod in the east, and then headed northwest again. Evidence of this, if you remember, was Olaf II Haraldson, Harald's own half-brother, as well as the well-known Viking, Olaf or of just one generation earlier. Rus' territory just seemed like the natural regrouping stage for a triumphant return to North Sea politics. But head south, he did, and I tend to lean toward the idea that Harald most likely gave up his ambitions to the throne. However, just as he left Kiev, word was sent that the throne of Norway was back in the family. It turns out that Olaf II's illegitimate son, Magnus Olafsson, not even 10 years old, by 1035, had risen to be the king of Norway. And it turns out also that he had a solid following. So any hope for Harold was probably gone, as even an illegitimate son in Norway, was probably more acceptable than a half-brother of the king in terms of lines of succession. That and, well, Magnus was young and malleable, while Harold was battle-hardened and entering his 20s. If Harold did harbor any hopes, well, he would have to wait it out a while. So why not bolster his claim when the time came by amassing experience, wealth, and maybe even a modicum of fame? And what better place to establish oneself on the battlefield on the broader platform of European politics than in the largest, and by far greatest, city of medieval Europe had to offer? So, south it was. Myclegard, the great city. Traveling by boat for most of the way, there would inevitably have been the moment when the current picked up a bit. When the winds changed and the air became saltier and the Dnieper would have opened into the Black Sea, which which must have been quite a sight to behold. The Black Sea is a world unto itself, to say the very least. As early as the 900s BCE, Greek towns and ports and villages began popping up all around the coasts of this vast inland ocean, making it only second to the Mediterranean with regards to ancient maritime commercial and military traffic. The stories of the Argonauts navigating these waters, and and Prometheus gifting fire to humans in the Caucasus Mountains on its eastern shores, well, these were staples to Greek mythology, and they all centered around the Black Sea. Many of the region's largest and most navigated rivers emptied into it, like the Dnieper, the Don, the Danube, and the Dniester Rivers, to name just a few of the many. A prominent peninsula jutting incredibly far into its center is still contested today. It's called Crimea, claimed by both Ukraine and Russia, and to its east lies the much smaller but still formidable Sea of Azov. The Black Sea holds a fascinating history and probably more secrets than we can imagine, with discoveries of sunken cities currently being found just off its coasts and I was amazed to learn the sheer quantity of stories that emerged from the Black Sea region. And that's entirely apart from the Hellenic stories of the Argonauts that I already knew. The ancient Hittites, the Thracians, the Greeks, Persians, Sumerians, not Sumerians, by the way, Scythians, Romans, Byzantines, Goths, the Huns, the Avars, the Slavs, Venetians, Genoese, Tatars, Ottomans, and so many more who... I probably only know in name and not much about their individual histories. They've all used the vast waters of the Black Sea to lead campaigns of expansion, to enrich themselves and their communities back home, wherever that might be, or even to carve out a new life away from whatever oppression or, or, or hardship they experienced before. The Black Sea was a region seen in the same light as anywhere and everywhere else at one point. It was a land of opportunity. Its dark waters were pristine and bountiful, its currents swift and useful, and its proximity to cultural and commercial centers linking the entire world together, east and west, north and south, could be found along its shores. Some of the most important events in human history took place in, on, and around the Black Sea, such as the possible source of the dispersal of the horrific Black Plague, or a Crusader defeat at Varna, or an Ottoman victory at Trebizond, and then, of course, much later, the meeting of American President Franklin Roosevelt, British Prime Minister Winston Churchill, and Soviet Russian dictator Joseph Stalin that pretty much sealed the ultimate defeat of National Socialist Germany during World War II. Of course, there's no way for young Harold Sigurdsson to have known any of this, but he was no doubt aware of this vast sea's importance to Rus' prosperity as, if anything, a part of the route to Miklagard, the center of wealth, dominance, and culture in his time. It's unclear whether he sailed out of sight of shore on those Viking shallow-bottomed boats that were in every way perfect for river travel. But let's assume he stayed close to shore. He certainly sailed by north and western Black Sea ports and settlements of uh, Nikonian, Odessa, Constanta, and Varna before entering the fabled Bosporus, which is, as we know, the center point of the medieval world. The Bosporus is really at the heart of the birth of the entire Black Sea itself currently dubbed the Black Sea Deluge Hypothesis. This hypothesis, first put forth in the mid-1990s, challenged the prevailing thought that the Black Sea was simply the product of the forces of the many ice ages throughout history, with sea levels rising and falling with global climates. Its lead theorists claim that the Black Sea, at least in its current form, simply didn't exist before 5600 BCE. After millennia, of Mediterranean pressures against a weak point, basically, that will someday be called the Dardanelles, a collection of islands poking out of the waters, connecting the Mediterranean to the Black Sea. This, of course, was the end of the last glacial maximum, causing a steady rise in global water levels. World populations boomed over the course of a couple centuries due to what we now call the First Agricultural Revolution as cheese was first being made in poland malta was being discovered and settled the chinese began creating pottery with sand basic large scale and i use the term loosely compared to today of course basic large scale animal husbandry emerged to the north of the black sea and overall cultural or excuse me an overall cultural culture diversified and flourished all over this all happened while the Black Sea was filled to similar levels we see today, though, again, scientists are discovering sunken structures indicating an obvious ebb and flow throughout the millennia since. The deluge hypothesis and the prevailing hypothesis only differ in whether it was a sudden bursting forth from a breach near the Dardanelles, or the slow rise simply filled the lowlands to the Dardanelles east. And it's difficult at this point to determine who's right because, well, there's evidence of both. Regardless how it was created, Harold most likely sailed through its threshold with eyes as wide as they could go. What, what he saw inside the strait was no doubt deeply provo- profound, yes, even for a Norseman. Maybe I'm projecting myself onto Harold here, maybe a bit too much a practice that can be both enlightening as well as dangerously dishonest, which is obviously something I don't want to be, but I can't help but draw upon the myriad of accounts throughout the the centuries of the profundity of the city Harold would have called Mikligard. There's no shortage of writings that attempt to describe the great city, Constantinople, especially around the time of Harold, a man who had become one of its greatest warriors so with that evidence, I find it enticing to project myself through Harold's eyes here. And it's no secret that Harold, like many, many other Vikings during the Viking Age, was a scald, a poet, a person who embodied what we would consider today as complete opposites, which was a brutal warrior and a cultured man. But during the Viking Age, a warrior poet was actually highly regarded, now, that said, I'm reminded of my personal studies years ago on the sublime. American writer John Burroughs in the 1800s once said, quote, Without the emotion of the beautiful, the sublime, the mysterious, there is no art, no religion, no literature, End quote. Constantinople was the center of art the heart of the Eastern Rite Christian faith, and was experiencing a, the wake of Basil II's Golden Age during the 1030s, producing some of the empire's greatest literary works since the days of Augustus a thousand years earlier. In my mind, Harold's sailing into port during this dynamic time in Byzantine history begs me today, a thousand years later, to consider the sublime as one of Harold's feelings. I mean, why wouldn't it? Herald beheld a city unlike any other. Even Rome itself, though I'm sure each in their heydays would give the other a real run for their money. Founded over 1,700 years before Herald, by Greek traders, it was originally called Ligos. But over the centuries, up to the Emperor Constantine in the 300 CE, it had changed from Lagos to Byzantium hence modern historians having dubbed the empire by the same name, so as to separate its history from that of the Western Roman empires. But make no mistake about it, what we call Byzantine today, they themselves called it simply Roman. To the Byzantine mind, there was no difference between them and the Romans who actually occupied Rome. It would also undergo numerous makeovers as it matured from Hellenic trading port to Greek city, from Greek city to Eastern Roman Empire capital, that of Constantinople, or city of Constantine, the great Roman general turned emperor and man who accepted Christianity as the empire's religion. Within a couple of centuries, it would surely still be called Constantinople, however, it was to the Greek population... It's worth noting here that those in Constantinople largely spoke Greek and were, by all accounts, culturally Hellenic. At long last, one could suppose a a reclamation of their once-towering Greek history that they referred to Constantinople as Nova Roma, or New Rome. But that one didn't obviously stick. At that point, from its ascendance in the 400s to its fall in the 1400s, it was known by many names. Miklagard, or the great city, to the Scandinavians. Tsaragrad, or city of the Caesar, to Slavic populations and Bulgarian ones. And Basileusa, or queen of cities. Walls would be constructed, fall, reconstructed, fortified, refortified, and on and on and on throughout its 1,000-year history as the Byzantine capital. And when Harold sailed along the Bosporus, he would look upon Myclegard and begin to get an idea of why it was in fact called Myclegard by all the traders returning to Kiev from its marketplaces. As Harold sailed through, excuse me, sailed south through the Bosporus, each shore could be seen in most spots as he was right in the middle. But depending on the day and the And the haze and fog, the 2.3 mile wide, at some points, distance might have been blurred or hidden one side from the other. And on the opposite side of the Bosporus from Constantinople was the other ancient trading port of Chalcedon. It would, as you can assume, be swallowed up at some point by the much larger city across the way, but it was still, in Harold's time, a bustling port in its own right. Now, as Harold no doubt stood on the stern of his ship, he would see Chalcedon to his left, just as the Bosporus' wide maw opened up to reveal Myclegard, both to his right and straight in front of him. Constantinople rests on a peninsula that effectively eats into the Bosporus Strait and helps to create three distinct waterways on either side of the city. To its northeast, as we've said, is the Bosporus itself which is a strait that flows into the Black Sea. To its north, the river that empties into the Bosporus is called the Golden Horn. It's really an estuary. And the Propontis, to us today, it's called the Marmara Sea. The Propontis is the large body of water that connects the Bosporus and the Black Sea to the Aegean and Mediterranean Seas. Harold most likely would have sailed into the Golden Horn, skimming the surface above what he might not at the time have known was even there. See, a gigantic chain was used as a defense of the city. See, the sides of the propontis to the south, around the tip where the the palace and monument center was, and along the north side, entering into the Golden Horn River, were all heavily fortified with thick, nearly impenetrable walls that went almost completely to the water's edge. Technology at the time made a sea incursion on the city almost impossible. But its harbors and ports along the Golden Horn more or less needed to be less fortified, otherwise trade would, well, trade would be stifled by the myriad of defensive positions and walls traders would need to access to bring their goods to market. So the Golden Horn was fairly susceptible by its very nature, Not only that, but any city vulnerable on two or more sides has less of a chance of mounting an effective defense. If enemy navies were allowed to attack on any of its four sides, that is, the land side, the Propontis side, the bosporus side, and the golden horn side, well, Constantinople might not have weathered the many attempts over its incredibly long history. In response to this, in the brutal 8th century marked by civil unrest after the long, prosperous rule of Justinian I, in an era marked by Arab attempts on the weakened city, city leaders built the Golden Horn Chain, a remarkable feat of engineering that stretched the length of the Golden Horn estuary where it enters the Bosporus on the city's north side, as I've said. Not only did the Golden Horn Chain protect its northern flank, make no mistake, the chain was pulled upward and blocked navies from entering, yeah, navies, but it also served as another testament to the power of the Eastern Roman Empire at the time. Harold, having sailed over the Golden Horn Chain, I want you to keep this in mind, I'm focusing on this for a reason. Harold, having sailed over the Golden Horn Chain, would have entered somewhere on the north side through the many gates. My guess is that, as a general rule from anywhere in the city, the closer you got toward the Bosporus Strait, the wealthier the neighborhoods became. And given the Byzantine abhorrence for everything having to do with the marketplace and the business being done there, it's likely that the markets, at least those in which Harold would have entered, would have been far up the estuary and away from its empirical hub of activity, meaning he would have probably entered the city through the Gate of the Hunters or the Gate of Theodosia, Notable exceptions, however, include the Venetian, Pisan, the Amalfitan, and Genoese quarters—neighborhoods, really— along the Golden Horn nearest the innermost Severan Walls, but we jump a bit ahead there. Just as he no doubt was just five years earlier upon entering into bustling Kiev, Harold would have beheld quite a sight, regardless of where he entered. People bustled to and fro— haggling and selling and arguing everywhere he listened. It was humid. It was stiflingly hot, the air probably not flowing very well due to the mass of people clogging the streets and the vendor spaces. But Harold and his men, no doubt, would have stopped and taken a look at the wares and the food being bought and sold all around them. Though most luxury items like the majority of inks and silks and exotic woods, for example, were limited by both law and prices to the upper-class elite. There was a booming middle class in Constantinople to always keep prices honest. Everything from pots and pans for cooking to tools for trade and weapons for defense and warfare were sold in any number of markets across the city. Icons were a big trade as well. Well, obviously, the elite were the only beneficiaries of exotic foreign icons, but each household, regardless of wealth, had at least one icon of a saint who they felt had blessed them. So they would place it in a position of reverence, sometimes over the door, and the family would pray to it regularly in thanks. In addition, as Constantinople grew, so did its number of churches and its revered figures. And with each church came a neighborhood, with a church at its center. Each church had its chosen icon at its heart on display. And almost like a a sports team, replica icons were created and sold on the market so that churches, parishioners, could have a copy at home. But it wasn't just religious icons and artwork that were coveted. See, centuries earlier as Christianity expanded from desert cult to religion of an empire, there was a period during and after Constantine where anything deemed pagan by Christian authorities was a dangerous display of devilish intentions. And sadly, anything, and I mean anything, that was Roman or Greek or Egyptian or anything like that were swiftly destroyed, including human life. Just ask polymath and philosopher Hypatia of Alexandria, who was dragged from her mount on her way home by Christian zealots, skinned alive, and burned to ashes, simply for embracing so-called paganism. I encourage you, as I've said before, to read Catherine Nixie's The Darkening Age for more on this uh, dark period of history. Folks in Constantinople eventually joined the bandwagon of effectively doxing those who didn't think and believe how they did in a fit of cancel culture of its own. But by the 11th century, when Harold walked through its streets, a sense of history had returned to Christians, and in many places, a pride of their shared history had taken hold. Ancient statues and idols and engravings and mosaics, I mean, you name it, it was being traded for top dollar. Greek gods like Zeus and Aphrodite now adorned homes next to icons of Christian saints in a way that would have made John Christostomus skin himself alive. And after Basil II's magnificent reign, which, as I've said, ushered in a a little golden age, of which Harold would unknowingly witness its collapse, by the way, folks otherwise deemed to be, quote, too poor to be offered an education— were in fact now more or less educated, and history began to take a life of its own. According to a 2018 article on the website ancient.eu, written by Mark Cartwright, Byzantines were pretty meticulous in in their money and goods trading policies. For instance, Cartwright writes, Quote, heavy goods were scrupulously weighed using steel yards and weights in the form of a bust of either the emperor or the goddess Minerva slash Athena, quote. He continues, quote, smaller goods, such as spices, were measured out using a balance with weights made of copper alloy or glass. And to minimize cheating, weights were inscribed with their representative weight or equivalent value in gold coinage and regularly checked, End quote. Eastern Romans, listen, can I just call them Byzantines at this point for clarity? So, Byzantines. were also dabbling in the guild economy, which will become a major player on the European economic landscape in the coming centuries. In earlier Roman history, the state itself, Cartwright tells us, stayed out of the trades for the most part. But in Constantinople, the state played a larger and larger role in trade, and the way and the quantities in which cities received their imports. Cartwright explains, quote, Trade operated through a variety of hereditary guilds, with merchants who transported the goods, naviculari, being subsidized by the state, and subject to significantly reduced duties and tolls. Duty on imported goods was collected by state-appointed officials known as Comerciario, who collected duties on all commercial transactions and who issued an official lead or excuse me, lead seal once goods had been through the system. To limit the possibilities for corruption, the comerciarioi were given one-year posts and then moved elsewhere. End quote. Sounds like a good idea to me. Cartwright admits to the level of smuggling occur occurring during this time. So Customs houses were also set up all over the place, which basically states that if you want to do any trade within the empire whatsoever, you have to register everything you're carrying first. And I found this bit in the article especially interesting. Quote, "...the state also ensured that no goods useful to an enemy were permitted to be exported. Gold, salt, timber for ships, iron for weapons, and Greek fire." the secret Byzantine weapon of highly flammable liquid. Neither was prestigious silk dyed with Tyrian purple permitted for sale abroad. End quote. Tyrian purple was a special purple dye that was harvested from the murex shellfish first produced in Tyree, an ancient Phoenician port just north of Jerusalem. Why couldn't you export a purple dye, you ask? Well, this purple dye was also the dye used, in all regal clothing. No one except the emperor could wear this color throughout Roman empirical history, and it was no different in Constantinople, as again, they regarded themselves as nothing more than Romans themselves. Side note, we've mentioned Zoe Porphyrogenita on the podcast already. Well, her name translates to Zoe the Purple-born as she was the daughter of the emperor. So there's that connection with the dye used. In every direction, Harold turned his head, he would have seen people of every shade, speaking any number of foreign languages, some sounding quite like his own, some more guttural, while others that seemed to roll like lyrics in a poem. I'm looking at you, Arabic. And wearing styles, colors, and varying layers of clothing he'd never dreamed existed. The experienced men he'd just traveled with would have melted into this loud, chaotic kaleidoscope of culture with ease. But Harold and his contingent might well have been momentarily awestruck and paused just to make sense of it all. The thought that there was an an entire city of, of this, I can imagine, might have struck him as incomprehensible in the moment. This was a city Harold would soon learn, with over 300,000 inhabitants, and maybe another 50% of that were visitors, either trading, passing through, or on pilgrimage to its holy sites. And there was a growing number of immigrants escaping the ravages of Asian peoples expanding their reach, such as the Turks. By Harold's time, it had been 700 years since Constantine the Great established it as Christianity's holiest city next to Jerusalem. Constantinople was about as ancient as they come to people like Harold, if you can wrap your head around that one. Let's assume he entered far up the Golden Horn, at the Gate of the Hunters near St. John the Baptist Church, located just outside the walls for those looking to serve the visitors to the city, or even to serve the destitute outside its high walls. Walking in, he would have seen two hills several hundred yards away. It's unclear as to how much history Harold grew up hearing of the deeply ancient Mediterranean world, but it's unlikely that he would have known at the time that Constantinople, much like ancient Rome itself, was built upon seven hills. Harold would have been in the 14th district housing markets and churches and houses galore, after having lost many of his men to the brothels and speakeasies along the way, no doubt. Walking uphill between the sixth hill and against the mighty external Theodosian Walls to the northwest, and the fifth hill to the southeast against the inner Constantinian Wall, he would have emerged on the other side looking down at the Lycus River, a freshwater river flowing into the Propontis. But interestingly enough, just inside the Constantinian Wall... It would have made its way underground via an artificial aqueduct before eventually emptying into the large harbor of Theodosius, located smack in the center of the city's southern shores. From Harold's position there, he would see the lower but much wider Seventh Hill. But back between the Fifth and Sixth Hills, Harold turned southeast on one of the two major thoroughfares that led from the external Theodosian Walls which is the land side of the city, straight to the point at which the city beheld its beating heart, the palace complex, located at the point where the Bosporus, the Golden Horn, and the Propontus all joined together. Following this main road, Harold passed through the Constantinian Wall, walking along the top of the fourth hill, which he no doubt stopped to see the Church of the Holy Apostles, Just past that, he walked alongside the Valens Aqueduct, which also ran toward the city center, providing fresh water to the inhabitants of the 10th, 7th, 6th, and 8th districts. That is, those districts that were more or less between the 4th and 3rd hills. The good news is, from the 4th hill to the 3rd hill, he would veer slightly south away from the 3rd hill and have a pleasant downhill walk (laughs) through more markets, neighborhoods, and churches. But what, without question, may have shocked him was the amount of stone all around. Everything seemed to be laid and flattened. He'd seen plenty of churches made of stone and mortar, but streets and homes were also made with stone and mortar. Everywhere he looked and walked was stone. And what's more, even though these people worshipped stone, they also had a peculiar notion to enjoy nature unlike anything he'd seen before either. These strange Byzantine people, under the sweltering sun and oppressively humid and salty salty air, which was only amplified by the stone everywhere, by the way, well, these people still found it fitting to infuse this concrete jungle with some grassy, tree-lined promenades and parks. Different colored flowers and fruits were everywhere Harold looked in some places. You know, he might have got caught staring off and not watching where he was going nearly knocking buckets of water out of someone's hand too, buckets of water someone was carrying down the street. Water wasn't always readily available for those in the lower and middle classes, so there was a trade of people who brought household buckets of water constantly each day, having pumped it from a nearby cistern. And the way in which these people lived was peculiar peculiar too. It's likely Harold had never seen buildings built so high before. Romans built up, just like we do today, but Byzantines upped the Roman apartment game considerably. Two, three, four, even five stories high, I've read, many of these buildings reached. Unfortunately, stairs were the only way up and down, though, and Harold no doubt noticed pretty quickly the smell on the ground level was just, everywhere you went was just horrendous, as public sanitation wasn't exactly a, a Byzantine strong suit, so as you can imagine, those with more money could afford the higher apartment, up above not only the noisy, dark streets, but also the putrid smell, leaving, of course, the lower classes to live in the squalor below. However, the well-to-do had their own problems. See, these housing complexes were mostly built in a courtyard model, like those of ancient Rome. And in these courtyards, families would not only break bread together but also bake bread together, using communal fire pits and ovens. Well, sometimes humans are their own worst enemies, and fires broke out. And though the streets and monuments and walls and aqueducts and plazas and forums were all made of concrete, the vast majority of these housing complexes were still made of wood. And when a fire erupted, there was a far higher chance that those at the top simply didn't survive. And even understanding this, it's easy to find yourself daydreaming of ancient Constantinople, a place of beauty, a place we should all learn about, just an almost paradise. But it most definitely, be sure, had its share of squalor, crime, and poverty. Unfortunately, exactly like cities even today have. For a Norseman like Harold, though, that certainly wouldn't have shaken him too much, and he no doubt witnessed those areas too on his walks through the city. In fact, it's possible that he was forced to find his way there for his first several nights, as they were by far the cheapest places to find lodging until he could get a grip on his situation. He would eventually make his way further toward the city center and come upon the Forum of Theodosius, which lay at the base of the third hill in the 8th district. Just up ahead was the Forum of Constantine that served as the point of confluence of several geopolitical boundaries within the city. The 6th, 5th, 8th, and 3rd districts all met at this forum, as well as the forum lying at the entrance through the inner Severan Wall, the first wall to be built in the city, at least on the land side. As he passed through this gate, he found himself at the heart of it all, the palace complex the 5th through 1st districts lay before him two main harbors located on north on the northern golden horn just inside the chains as well on the road he was on to his right he would have seen a structure unlike anything he could ever have imagined the hippodrome built 800 years earlier by the roman emperor emperor septimius severus who took a liking to the then called byzantium mainly for its geographical usage in trade and security, Emperor Severus was also the namesake of the brand-new walls that Harold had just entered through, as we've just said. Able to hold about 100,000 spectators. For modern comparison, eight U.S. college football stadiums hold between 107 and 100,000 fans. And for our international listeners, Melbourne Cricket Ground in Australia holds 100,000. Camp Nou in Barcelona, Spain holds over 99,000 fans, and Wembley Stadium holds 90,000 people in London. Give credit where credit's due, for sure. The Hippodrome of Constantine, as it came to be known, was without question the epicenter of Byzantine social life, as it held everything from public punishments to chariot races, which actually separated people by colors much like you'd see in British soccer today with the, with the Blues of Manchester City and the Reds of Manchester United in Manchester, the Blues of Chelsea and the Reds of Arsenal in London, and the Blues of Everton and the Reds of Liverpool in Liverpool, for instance. It's interesting to think that Harold might have happened upon the Hippodrome for the first time when a race was happening, or about to happen, inside. He would have heard songs being sung as loudly as they could be sung in support of their own side, or songs, uh, you know, meant to tease the opposition. Go to any random derby in London, Liverpool, or Newcastle, or wherever, and you wouldn't feel too alienated to tell you the truth. But these sides were often chosen by religious or political factions, instead of only neighborhoods within the city. Though that was a part of it, too. See, political factions, as you can imagine, varied throughout the entire city, and political parties began popping up. These political parties, who represented their area, would then financially support a specific athlete in the Hippodrome to bolster prestige and clout within the Byzantine Senate. There were once blues, greens, reds, and whites, and maybe others too, I don't know. But it slowly whittled away into two main groups, the blues and the greens, or the Benetoi and the Prasinoi. And much like the darker days of the English League in the 1970s and 80s, unfortunate acts of violence, outrage, and even riots flared up from time to time. So to quote the incomparable Mel Brooks, it's good to be the king, because there was a private passage between the Hippodrome and the Great Palace to the Stadium Southeast. And this palace was indeed great, grand even. It was far larger than the Hippodrome. With one side being the wing of living quarters for the empirical family, and one side being the place where the Byzantine Senate held Congress. Similar to the United States White House today, insofar as the President's family has one wing, while the opposite wing houses the executive branch's business. One major difference, of course, is that there were actually a wing there was actually a wing for the empress and children, quite separate from the Emperor's wing a sign of the times, to be sure. Other palaces were built up around the Hippodrome area, like that of the Palace of Antiochus and the Palace of Lausus, for example. The great palace opened up on the north side to the baths of Zuxippos, and across the street from it was the jaw-dropping Hyasovia, And in front of the Hagia Sophia was the breathtaking column of Justinian towering in front of it. Justinian was one of the Eastern Roman Empire's most notable emperors. Having taken power within 100 years of Rome's official fall, Justinian lived and reigned in a tumultuous time of evolution for the Eastern Roman Empire. A simple church up to Justinian's age, the Hagia Sophia was built and rebuilt, and devastated, and rebuilt a few times already. But a month after what was called the Nica riots, which opposed Justinian I's rule in 532 CE, Emperor Justinian put his city to work on fixing what they destroyed, and more. To quote Lars Brownworth in his book Lost to the West, quote, This had to be something different, something fitting for the new golden age that was dawning. Expense, he informed his two chief architects, wasn't an issue, but speed was. End quote. Justinian would oversee the construction of the largest unsupported dome in the world. Quote, it took only five years, ten months, and four days from the laying of the first stone to the completion of the building, End quote. Brownworth writes. He continues later, quote, Marveling at the stunning panorama, Justinian stood silently, drinking it in. After a long moment, those closest heard him whisper, Solomon, I have surpassed you. End quote. Almost 110 feet high, and a floor space beneath its dome of about 174,000 square feet, or almost 16,200 square meters. The Hagia Sophia still stands proudly above the landscape of Istanbul, Turkey, the city's latest evolution. And after serving as a Muslim mosque under Ottoman Turk control, it was made a museum in 1935, though just last year, in 2020, President Recep Erdogan of Turkey reverted it back to a mosque. None of that last part would have meant a rip to young Harold, but it would serve to stand as a moment, at least in my imagination, though. I mean, come on, it can't be that much of a stretch. But it would, it would serve to stand as a moment in which Harold finally felt as if he'd seen the larger world at last. I mean, what's grander than the Hagia Sophia? But eventually, he would find work. Eventually, given his experience and temperament, Harold would find his way to the seedier side of city life. He'd ask around for folks who needed muscle. And this would eventually lead into a meeting with a man, whoever that was, who would recruit him to join the fabled Varangian Guard, the elite special forces tasked with protecting the emperor with their lives if needed. The emperor, Harold, would be tasked with guarding who would be wi- who he would willingly lay down his life for at a moment's notice was Michael the Fourth, Paphlagonian. But My- Michael the Fourth would not be the emperor Harold would leave serving. Scratch that. Harold wouldn't just leave. He would escape, barely. But that's a story for next time, I suppose. hope you enjoyed today's episode touring the ancient at least to herald city at the center of the world please keep sharing this podcast with those you know and on your social media accounts don't forget to tag us too if you share us on twitter at wheel podcast or drop a quick line about the latest episode on facebook fortunes wheel podcast we've also expanded to good pods app so i encourage you to head over there and stay in touch also, you can email the show at fortuneswheelpodcast at gmail.com, and please consider supporting the show on Patreon. Harold have found himself in over his head as he arrived in Micklegard. It truly was a great city, and as he entered the service of a foreign emperor, he would visit places he never knew existed, pray in places that only existed in the mouths of northern priests and fight alongside and against both friends and enemies. On the next episode, we will follow Harold's journey across the Mediterranean world from modern-day Iraq to Sicily, and just about everywhere in between, it seems. And we'll also find him a far different man when he leaves Myclegard than when he arrived. A far different man. I can't wait to tell you about it.